As most of you know, my name is Phil, and I have the honor of being the pastor of Clarity Church, and I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, open up whatever copy of the scripture you have to Ephesians chapter 3. And while you find your way to Ephesians chapter 3, I, I just want to say that I am so excited about not only this opportunity with every meal, but as we unfold uh, kind of a vision for what the next few years will look like for us as a church. And I really hope, first of all, that many of you would connect with Corey and Emma, and it's a, it's a test. I'm actually interested, so I'll just be completely honest. I'm, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to be, it's a test for me to be like, man, is our church even passionate about, look, if you can't serve, you can always give, or you can at least just contact them and say, like, what can we do? Like, I, I would love for you guys just to, to connect with them. But then even as we talk about what I hope, um, I know is beating in my heart, I hope that as I talk about it, it beats in yours. Um, I hope that you would engage uh, in, in, these, in these next steps that, that we have going on in the next coming months and years. And so, uh, really excited about that. So, with that said, have you found Ephesians chapter 3? Found Ephesians chapter 3? Good. I want to look at verses 8 to 21. Um, and then after that, I'll pray. And then we'll dive into the subject of today's message that I have given the title, The Church as a Means for Accomplishing God's Mission. The Church as a Means for Accomplishing God's Mission. As we close out this series, we are clarity. Now, I, I will admit, before we dive into all this, typically I try to keep and maybe this is even talking too much. I try to keep the messages at a point where it's not like too intellectual, not too many big words, so it's, it's accessible to, you know, maybe a middle schooler, but then, but I also try to include content that's, uh, you know, maybe available to the, to the Bible nerd. I, I will tell you today that a lot of what I'm going to talk about is a lot of Bible nerd stuff. And if you are part of our communities you'll get a copy of this message. There are tons of footnotes and tons of resources that you can use to... If, I'm going to go through it really quickly. I just want to let you know, I have a lot to say today, so, but I'm going to get it done for the sake of our kids' ministry. <laughs> but I think it's really, really important. I, what I have to say here, and, and forgive me if I'm not as entertaining today, information is what I want to give you today. Is that Okay. So if I'm not funny and I don't have a good illustration, please forgive me. There's a lot of information I want to share with you today as we talk about this idea of the church as a means for accomplishing God's mission. Before we do that, let's read the word of the Lord, pray, and then we'll dive right in. Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 21. Paul says this to the church he planted that we talked about in Ephesians, in Ephesus, and talked about in the book of Acts. He says this, though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. And here's the verse I really want you to listen to. Verse 10, God's purpose, God's purpose God's purpose in all of this was to use the church, the church, 
to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please, don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, and I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit, then Christ will make his home (laughs) in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, meaning that not all God's people do. (laughs) So just because you don't doesn't mean you're not God's people, but you should. What should? You should know, you should understand this, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able, through his mighty power at work within us. Us. Not you. Us. To accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me as I pray? Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the love that you demonstrated to us by sending your son, Jesus. We sang about that today. Your son who would die so that the penalty of our sin could be paid for. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, not only that provides for rescue from sin, but in the demonstration of your resurrection from the dead, you also promise to make your home in our hearts, (laughs) reminding us every day that you will never leave us or forsake us. And like Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers, I pray that you would give us the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep Your love is 
so that we could have the kind of motivation and faith that will allow us to have you accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or even imagine in and through our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we jump into this passage, let me ask a question. It's a very serious question. Do we have any music lovers out there? Music, music lovers? Music lovers. People who love music, thank you. Thank you, music lovers. Thank you, music lovers. What was the first album that you ever remember listening to? What was it? T-Swift? What was it? What, what was it? Come on. So what was the first album you remember? The Beatles. Ah, of course. Elerts. Love the Beatles. What else? What is it? Black Sabbath. Wow. Wow. And, and okay, so what did you, what, what, uh, what was it on, by the way? Was it on cassette, 8-track, vinyl? What was it on? Real to what? Okay, real to real, real to When you first heard the Beatles, what did you hear it on? CD. Oh, sophisticated. Real to real, for real? For re- get it? For real. Anyways, never mind. I remember uh, as a kid listening to my first album, uh, it was the Jungle Book soundtrack, okay? on seven-inch vinyl. Anyone remember the seven-inch vinyl? And you had to put it at the right speed because the smaller ones, right? If you didn't put it at the right speed, it sounded like this. Because you had to go a little bit faster. Remember that? And uh, by the way, not everyone always called them vinyl. Do you remember what we used to call them? Records, right? But now it's weird to call them records because, you know, like, well, everyone makes a record, but are you listening it to on vinyl? Like, vinyl just sounds cooler. (laughs) And so, um, and then there was my first cassette. My first cassette was, uh, was something that I listened to, actually, uh, if you know, you know, uh, a cassette to eight track converter. Anybody remember what an eight track was? Eight track? So uh, I remember on every car ride in my mom's 1970s red Cutlass Supreme, huh? Okay. My family had a cool car. It was a red Cutlass Supreme. I just remember it had an eight track in it. And so my mom, um, and I didn't, I understand it more now that I'm a parent because I, don't, I forget what albums we had in our car, but it was the same one. You know, when you're a parent, you just have that, what, if your kids like something, you're just going to keep it in there forever. And I remember every time we got in the car, we, we, we played the hits from the classic kid album, Bullfrogs and Butterflies. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Bullfrogs and Butterfly? Bullfrogs and Butterfly. What? We've both been born. Okay, anyways, right? Um, you know, they uh, the, had the hit songs like uh, Practice Makes Perfect, Practice Makes Perfect, or, uh, or Bullfrogs and Butterflies. N- nobody's tracking with me. I'll, I'll keep on moving. Uh, eventually, cassettes gave way to CDs, right? And CDs then gave way to MP3s. And now we have M4As and all these types. So how we listen to music has changed over the years, and while no one can argue that the fact how we listen to music has changed when it comes to answering the question, which way is the best way to listen to music, uh, the, bait, the debate goes on and on. For instance, I have friends that are, are, are audiophile snobs. This is, this is what happens when you have a lot of music 
lover friends, and, and they're fans of the vinyl record, right? And they say things like this, oh, Phil, you know, well, you know, vinyl is the only playback format that is fully analog and doesn't lose any of its original recorded sounds. It is what sound recorders call lossless, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, right, all right, good, good for you, good for you, good for you. Now, and granted, cassettes are terrible in quality, but there's a subculture of people who love cassettes mostly because of the nostalgia of Walkmans and mixtapes, right? Mixtapes, right? Mixtapes. However, uh, people who love cassettes also love the fact that they can confuse a generation of children who have no idea what a pencil and a cassette have anything to do with each other. If you know, you know, right? We all know. And if you don't know, ask someone who's older. Then, of course, there are those people who try to trump everyone and say, well, you know, the only way to listen to music is live. You know, the best, and dare, we dare say, the only way to really listen to music is live, right? Now, despite all the opinions, preferences, and longings of nostalgia, right, a, lot of, a lot of people like the records because they remember hearing a record in their grandma's house. And if that offends you, because they said grandma, forgive me, but that's what it is. That's what it's about today. Or they, they miss the idea of putting in a cassette tape and just hearing the click, click, and then wanting to hear the rest of the album, but having to take it out to turn aside what? Two, right? Because, you know, anyways, you don't know if you don't know. But despite all of this, people who love listening to music really just want to do what? Listen to music, right? This is because listening to, feeling, and experiencing music is the goal. (laughs) You might even say that it's the mission of all people who love music, to listen to music. How you get to the place of experiencing music is not a music lover's ultimate goal. It may be a preference, but if having to choose to never hear a single note of music ever again, or listening to music in a way that is not uh, preferred, For the true lover of music, the decision is pretty easy because the medium is just the means. It is never the goal. In talking about what clarity is all about over the last two weeks, we have established that the goal or the mission of the church is to be a community of followers of Jesus who repurpose their rhythms so that those disconnected from God can experience the gospel of Jesus with clarity, being disciples that make disciples. Let me just say that one more time again. The mission of the church is to be a community of followers of Jesus who repurpose their rhythms so that those disconnected from God can experience the gospel of Jesus with clarity, being disciples that make disciples. In our passage we just read, Paul says it like this, Ephesians 3.10, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authority in the heavenly places. And over the hundreds of years of the history of the church, there have been many ways that followers of Jesus organize themselves to live on mission With God and at the threat of sounding like a crude reductionist, allow me to summarize church history very quickly. And this is where it gets kind of uh, intellectual here, but bear with me. There's a point to all of this. 
In the first hundred years or so of the early church, the early church was a collection of small Christian communities that met in each other's homes for discipleship, and then they went out to the synagogue or into the public square to proclaim the gospel. This is what we see in the book of Acts. We've been learning this. And this model of being the church, listen, mainly existed partly because of the threat of persecution the early church faced. It was small, it was in homes, it was very, uh, you know, very concentrated, mostly because gathering in large settings meant certain death. So this was not a strategy. They were like, hey, here's a strategy. Let's meet in each other's homes and let's keep that in perpetuity. And that's the model that every person should follow if they want to be the real church. No, this was very practical. On top of that, the number of people, listen, on top of that, the number of people being saved was outpacing the ability to establish leadership that could continue the work of discipleship that the early church planters like Paul started. Or remember the day of Pentecost, how many people got saved? 3,000. Would 12 people be adequate enough to disciple 3,000 people? No, no, no. And so they broke into smaller groups and they tried to frantically try to, they said, well, we got a lot of work to do, so let's meet every day. Let's meet in these other's homes because right now we're still a persecuted religion. And as you look through the book of Acts and the Pauline epistles and the historical writings of historians like Josephus and other early church fathers, you might want to listen to maybe guys like Eusebius if you can ignore his writings that were more or less kind of apologetics to his personal stances rather than actual chronicling real history. But this is what you'll find out when you read early church history. Even just the Bible, if you, if you don't ignore what Paul is actually saying behind the text, the early church was messy. I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> the early church was a mess. There were conflicts there were threats of heresy, as well as factions that were, be cre- that were being created by power-hungry people trying to take advantage of a new growing religion that not too many people seem to know about, to establish themselves as spiritual leaders, right? There's this new religion that was gaining popularity, and power-hungry people were like, oh, I could be a Christian leader. I know a little bit about this Jesus, and I can, I can pretend that, I-. and this was happening all throughout the early church. And they were, they were wanting to be these spiritual leaders, or maybe as we call them today, influencers, right? Despite all this, by the power of the gospel, though, listen, despite all of this, by the power of the gospel of Jesus at work through the people of God, the church grew, despite all that. Then around 300 AD, under the rule of Constantine, the now unpersecuted church saw favor from the state and saw that they could use this favor to now organize people, establish places of worship, even systemize methods and means of worship for spreading the gospel, right? And it wasn't about controlling the people. It was just about a way to create a reproducible discipleship pathway. That's what it was initially. And during this time, the church was able to bring unity also into the middle of a very, 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 very fragmented movement of Christians distraught with false teachings and unbiblical ideologies. This is the reason why we had the Nicene Council, and it resulted in things like the Nicene Creed. And this period of church history also paved the way for the early monastic 
church movement. And while most people think of ancient monastic communities as people who took vows of celibacy and tried to separate themselves from society and, you know, and fought alongside Robin Hood, you know, right? While we think of monks in that type of way, monastic societies, the truth is this. Monastic, the monastic movement was one of the most impactful demonstration of Christian charity, hospitality, and justice. These early monastic communities housed travelers, they nursed the sick, they assisted the poor, they encouraged literacy, and in retrospect, they became an influential centerpiece in the creation of music and art. This was amazing. And while the attempts to bring unity to the church and live out the teachings of the scripture during this time through institutionalization, organization definitely moved the ball forward in spreading the gospel, there were still many, many, many problems in the church. For one, there was the papacy, but we we don't have enough time to go into all that. But Constantine used the Christian faith as a puppet for his political agendas, therefore taking the message of the gospel from the spiritual into the political arena, perverting it for preserving power and opposing his personal and oppressing his 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 uh, his personal ideals, he used Christianity to do this. Good news, though, despite all of this, by the power of the gospel of Jesus at work in and through the people of God, guess what? The church grew. Fast forward to the Protestant Reformation, which sought to bring change to the dysfunction that was the papacy and its unscriptural demands and practices it imposed on those who were part of the church. The Reformation was a pivotal movement, no doubt, in the history of the church that brought a focus on the grace of God defined by the word of God, sola scriptura. But it also launched the beginnings of a domino effect of fractures within the church that ultimately led to the start of multiple denominations that defined early Protestantism. But despite all the arguing over things such as predestination, paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism, complementarianism versus egalitarianism, transubstantial versus consubstantial views of communion, by the power of the gospel of Jesus at work in and through the people of God, guess what? The church grew despite all that. So what about the present? (laughs) What does the church look like now? Well, according to the Center of the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary, that's a huge name, I'll say that again, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary, reminds me of that Zoolander movie for Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good and stuff like, anyways, if you've never seen the movie, never mind. They tell us if you count up all of the denominations and the individual churches who claim no denominational affiliation, you know, back in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was like, like the real thing, like, oh, we're non-denominational, right? And so there was like this big movement of all these non-denominational churches. They approximate that there would be 
45,000 different Christian denominations in the world. Take all that, as well as the fact that even within denominations, there exist multiple models for discipleship and mission. And if you consider that, <laughs> the number of kinds of churches and factions and divisions and whatever you want to call it is staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Contemporary theologians have even tried to categorize and simplify all these models and movements. Many theologians like Ralph Winters sought to categorize churches by their emphasis on either sodalic or modalic structures. Other prominent theologians like Donald Dernbaugh or even recently Tim Keller have created intricate VIN-like diagram categories for explaining denominational and or church model strategies. This is stuff you can find. Again, like I said, you can get copies of my note. I have links to all this different stuff if you're wanting to geek out on that information. But why do I mention all this? Like, why, why, why even use the words sodalic and modalic and all these transubstantiation, blah, 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 blah? Listen, first, I want to shed the myth that some people have about church models and methods. And it's this myth <laughs> I hear all the time that previous models of church were created by ignorant people or by people who didn't really take time to understand the Bible and what it says about what the church is supposed to look like. Listen, over the centuries, men and women dedicated to the work of the gospel with, listen, more knowledge than you and I have or could even seek to gain if given just an hour of our time with Google, men and women over the centuries who were way smarter than any of us Maybe not smarter than Danielle. She has her master's. But men and women more smarter than all of us. Listen, they poured their life into figuring out how to create means for seeing that the church participated in God accomplishing his mission in the world. So it's a myth that all previous models were just created by sinful, ignorant, non-biblical people. Second, in almost 20 years of ministry, I've witnessed the obsession of church leaders and theologians over the debate of models of ministry. My library, personally, is lined with books about church models and systems I've attended conferences where there were breakout sessions on things like how to do purpose-driven church and why it's more biblical and effective at making disciples, how to do micro-churches or blended ecology churches and why it's more biblical and effective at making disciples, how to do simple church and why it's more biblical and effective at making disciples, how to do dinner churches and why it's more biblical and effective at making disciples. When I was graduating from Bible college, I remember how everyone was saying that neo-monastic churches, the neo-monastic church model, the, or the new ancient model, oh, this is going to be the future. In fact, I remember uh, interviewing 
at uh, the previous church where I worked, Danielle, and it, those 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 elders and the pastors like, oh, have you have you have you studied up on this new neo-nomastic model that is going to take this next generation? It's going to be the new thing, the next generation by storm, right? And I, and I just remember, and, and they said, you know, because it's more biblical and it will eventually be the most effective at reaching the next generation of followers of Jesus. And let me tell you this. Are most of the churches that are being effective in reaching people that are far from Jesus neo-nomastic models? Nope. <laughs> but it was all the craze. It was all the craze. And what do all these models have in common? Well, they are just models. They are not the mission. They are the means by which they hope to accomplish the biblical vision of helping every person experience the gospel of Jesus in word Indeed, and forgive me for the pun, with clarity. I think renowned theologian John Stott wrote it best when he said this. He said, the church's mandate for world evangelism is the whole Bible. It is to be found in the creation of God because of which all human beings are responsible to him in the character of God as outgoing, loving, compassionate, not willing that any should perish, desiring that all should come to repentance, in the promises of God that all nations will be blessed through Abraham's seed and will become the Messiah's inheritance, in the Christ of God, now exalted with universal authority to receive universal acclaim, in the Spirit of God who convicts of sin, witnesses to Christ, and impels the church to evangelize, and in the church of God, which is a multinational missionary community under orders to evangelize until Christ returns. For those that were with us when we studied the book of Ephesians back in 2019, this may seem like a refresher course, but let me just go back to Ephesians because it really is one of the best explanation of God's mission for the church in the world. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that even before the world was created, God had a plan for us. Even the curse of sin could not stop this plan, which is why Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 10, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together, everything that was broken because of sin and, and our selfishness and our pride. God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Of course, this plan was a doing of God's grace and not of our works, which is why chapter 2, Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Now, I know that any, even a gathering like this, there's always at least one persistent contrarian who would want to say, well, you know, since I'm saved by all God's work, that means I must, you know... I must be off the hook. I don't have to do anything, right? Because it's all God, right? He does everything. Paul follows it up in the next verse. In, in verse 10, in, in a couple verses later, he says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things. Some translations, translations it says, so we can do good works. He planned for us long ago. Now, you can't get away with doing nothing because, listen, God has a plan for you to do something. But the question was, what was it that he want you to do? Well, he wanted me to get a job, have a family, 
get kids, have a house, you know, not get in too many bar fights or whatever, right? No. Ephesians 3, what we just read. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authority of the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that's the information part. Let me wrap this up. When Leona and I felt God place it on our hearts to take the leap of faith, and it was a leap of faith. To really sit at the reins of starting a new church, I can confidently say that our hearts were set on following the Lord in whatever direction, whatever, like whatever direction. He would lead us to be a part of seeing an additional church, if I could put it so specifically. Join the ranks of other churches desiring to make disciples that make disciples. Now, I know that can sound quite conceited to say, but I have watched now in the eight years of our existence other church planters who, as the years passed on and the church did not look how they thought it would, eventually gave up. It's not an indictment on whether or not they were following the Lord or not. It's, just, it's a reality of what happened. And if you've been part of Clarity for a while, you've known we've gone through a lot of changes. And I will tell you, from the bottom of my heart, as sincere as I can, we started Clarity 100% willing for God to take us wherever that would go. And we wouldn't give up until God said, we're done. And so eight years ago on this Sunday, (laughs) you know that? This Sunday, eight years ago, eight years ago on this Sunday, we held our first public gathering. I did not know I was going to cry. And back then, we organized a discipleship pathway around the gifts and abilities and desires of that early group of people who willingly called themselves Clarity Church. We, <laughs> we took an assessment of what everyone was good at, what they were passionate about, and we said, what kind of church do we want to be? Well, how, how do we want to do this? And, and we created this environment, this community, with the hopes of reaching people with the gospel. Now, it, it's true, times have changed. We are no longer that same group of people. In fact, many have moved just because of how transient people are. Others left to find a church that better fit their preferences or values. Some left the church to pursue faith outside the context of biblical community altogether. Like some people just left, left, like they're not part of any church in general. And also, our culture has shifted dramatically. I don't know if you know this, but in the past eight years, our culture does not look the same. 
And while we could spend countless hours debating the results of research and studies on the current state of culture and the church, and trust me, there's a lot of research on there, and there's a lot of studies that want to tell you about how to reach Gen Z and what's working with millennials and, you know, are all the boomers dead or whatever, you know. (laughs) While we could spend countless hours debating that, one thing remains undebated. That the church exists to do what Jesus commanded when he said this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what's the point? What's the point of all this, Phil? I'm so glad you asked. Starting next week, I am asking all of you who consider yourself part of the Clarity Church family to join us in 21 days of prayer as we re-engage in the conversation. We started, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't remember, we started this conversation in the beginning of 2020 regarding how God would want to use our everyday rhythms, talents, and resources to see us being part of God's plan for helping those disconnected from God experience the gospel of Jesus with clarity. Next week, we'll bring back this 21 days of prayer that we started in 2020, and we'll also have uh, an updated and free devotional that we'll make available to accompany our efforts, kind of maybe help you remember to do this every single day. I'm asking you, I'm not making you, but I'm saying, would you pray with me starting next week being day, next Sunday being day one for 21 days? Would you pray with me about the future of disciple making and what that looks like for our church? Seriously, would you join me in praying for our church and the future that I believe God has for us? <laughs> Listen, I don't believe that God is done with us yet. I believe he has a grand plan to reach every person, specifically within our circles of influence with the gospel. C.S. Lewis writes this, the church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose.